So Patty, I really enjoyed our uh, podcast today. I uh, have yeah. Benedetti back on to talk about uh, creating a modern payments company and, and what, got, what kind of goes into that. Um, mm-hmm. I thought it was very interesting, actually. Yeah, I really did. And I, I really liked how you kind of uh, continued the theme in your questions from the field. Would you like to give people a little bit of a yeah. on, hint on that? Talk about raising capital. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I just give you the the very, very short version to hopefully start to point you in the right direction of, should you do buyouts? Should you borrow against residuals? Should you bring on investors? Should you go private equity? Uh, should you not get any outside capital? Right. Raise it yourself. So what I'm, are all the different I, options and what are I, the downsides? Yeah, I mean, between my own companies and the companies I consult for, I have seen every possible one of these strategies play mm-hmm. out in a possible way. Uh, so I just share a little bit of that experience. And then Patty, tell us about the Insiders Report today. Just just some update on fraud. And there's some really interesting trends and some really um, salient um, data points that I think everybody should 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 uh, be aware of. Awesome. Our our episode today is sponsored by NMI.com. So check out the leading gateway provider in the industry. It's NMI.com. I don't know about you, Patty, but I'm ready to go. Let's do it. Welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Hey, everybody. Patty and I are here today with Josh Benedetti, the CEO at CardZen. How are you doing today, Josh? I'm good. How are you? Doing fantastic. So uh, we are going to talk about building a modern payments company topic I've been wanting to cover. I mean, we've, we've kind of touched on some of these topics, but we haven't really brought it all together. And uh, Josh, I know you're kind of right in the midst of, you know, building one of these companies that I would consider a modern payments company. And so really excited to talk to you about it. Before we dive into that, maybe there's some who didn't listen to the last interview we did together. So can you give us kind of the elevator pitch of like, what is Cards In and tell us about your journey of, uh, you know, starting and leading this organization? Yeah, so I actually started off in finance investment banking, went into aerospace and defense contracting for like 10 plus years, uh, realized there was a big disconnect between that industry and payments. And basically with a little direction from my wife, kind of like what's the next you know journey that we're going to go on, we started CardZen. And it was basically to bridge that disconnect between the aerospace industry and payments. Um, they pay high high rates, slow deposit times, things like that. So we did that. And then we realized that that model would work in other industries. And so then we kind of expanded from there. Cool. Cool. That was pretty succinct. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it, it, it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting path. I'm wondering, you know, if you go back to the beginning, you know, as you were preparing to launch Cards End, how did you think about the brand and brand messaging? You know, what exactly were you trying to establish in the marketplace? We really wanted to focus on technology with a human touch. And that's been kind of our motto from day one. Um, you know, you have a lot of competitors in the industry and, and they focus really heavily on development, technology, automation, but we lose that human touch, that human connection. And as much as everybody wants stuff now and they want it fast and they want it streamlined, they still want to feel like they're valued, like they're a person. They still want to have that connection with somebody, be able to pick up the phone and call somebody if they want support or chat with somebody on a messenger. Um, so that, that's been our primary focus is just making sure that we have that human touch in every aspect. Uh, and that's really helped us with like our KYC, 
and really developing programs for our merchants as we're onboarding them and as we're helping them scale and you know filling any gaps that they have. Having that human touch, um, it really goes a long way in the relationship. Yeah. I, I love that you brought this up actually, Josh. I, you know, this is something that I'm really passionate about. As you know, with like our ISO AMP company, this is what we do. And I think it's so interesting because I, you know, I'm just I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this, you know, from a pure kind of technology perspective. What I find is trying to completely eliminate human interaction in technology, it's like you get to 90% what the computer does, 90% of it, and anything it could be a variety of things. And you know, the last 10%. To automate it, usually it is disproportionately expensive to build that technology, and it generally fails at a disproportionately high level, leading to a poor experience. And so what's interesting is I think a lot of the exciting tech today is how do we automate so much of the process, but we still identify that 5 to 10% of the process where the human interaction is cost effective and it's generating that experience. I don't know. Any other thoughts? I just, I don't know. I'm, I, I didn't know we were going to bring that up, but it just... I'm so passionate about that as well. I'm kind of curious. Any other thoughts you have about that? Yeah, um, you know, there, there's there's a lot that goes into that, um, and I, I don't know where that fine line is and where that right. that perfect ratio and mix is. Yeah. Um, but I've heard numerous times from merchants and from customers that they really value that, uh, and and it's. It's not just, you know, everybody talks about the race to zero. Oh, I can save you money in payments. And I've actually had people say, I'll pay a couple of extra points just to have somebody to talk to. I'll, you know, somebody who can give me a little guidance, uh, educate me on the, on the industry, um, bring different products and services that could help my business grow. Uh, so just not having that like payback, instant onboarding, instant approval, here's your login credentials, do it yourself, does go a long way. Um, and I, we've seen that numerous times with our customers. I, I love this. I think it's, um, these are the conversations that our industry needs to be having, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's like when we think about our customer experience and we think about the processes that they go through, um, whether that's onboarding, whether that's, you know, um, looking at their monthly uh, reports, you know, whatever it is, the point using the point of sale, the question is, you know, not the question shouldn't be how can we eliminate the maximum amount of human involvement? No, the question should be where does human involvement still make sense and how can we eliminate human involvement in areas where it doesn't add value? Right. And I think that's I think that's super important. So so in talking about technology, let, let's again kind of go back a little bit here. So we're talking about building a modern payments company. I know you're kind of through your kind of seed stage, I guess we'd say in, in kind of entrepreneurial terms, and, and now you're you're moving forward and growing. And so I'm kind of curious, you know, when you say, okay, we wanted to bring payments to aerospace, like at the very beginning, what did you need and how were you thinking about technology at that point? And then how has your vision shifted over time? Because I know in a modern payments company, you're really thinking about technology, not as kind of this afterthought, but as a core part of your strategy. So how did you think about technology at the beginning and what did you have or, or need to build or whatever? And then how are you thinking about that today? How's that kind of evolved? Evolved quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, so when we first started it, it was, you know, very standard ISO model, you know, uh, standard application, standard onboarding process. Um, we actually partnered with NMI uh, and we were 
you know, building out profiles and pushing level three data and things like that to help maximize, you know, discounts right. and so forth for the customers. And, and that's basically where we were in the process. And obviously we worked with, you know, our acquiring banks to say, hey, th- these are the type of profiles, the risk, the credit, everything that we were going to be bringing in that, in that first group. Um, so that we could streamline the onboarding process so that they knew what the credit risks were and we could do next day deposits for $225,000 tickets and, you know, all of that. Now that's drastically evolved. Now we're looking at like real-time payments, moving money instantly, um, microtransactions, marketplaces, um, taking all of these different products and services like, uh, uh, fraud scrubbing in the beginning and chargeback mitigation in the back where, you know, typically a standard ISO model is, you know, you have 3D secure as, as one vendor and you have like your reporting is is all, you know, your CRM dashboards, stuff like that. You have a gateway and then you have chargeback mitigation on the back end and it's all segregated. Um, and so what we're doing is we're bringing that all into one central location database interface, you know, creating that seamless user experience and providing the different payment methods that people are looking for. Um, you know, we're, we're currently uh, uh, working with an airlines out of uh, South America and onboarding them. And just the landscape in Central South America is drastically different from the U.S. Uh, they don't believe in banking. They don't believe in credit cards. Uh, you know, they've over the past three years, their market has drastically shifted towards like e-wallets and crypto. Um, and so they're doing a lot of uh, digital transactions. And so that's that's a completely different model from, you know, an ISO in the U.S. and how they would view payments. Hmm. Interesting. So when we think about vertical focus, this is another kind of uh you know, I feel like a key trend for that modern payments company there, you know, it's like, okay, technology is at the core, and we're thinking about technology, which clearly you are. Um, But then one of the other key pillars is this idea of vertical focus. And so, you know, we may serve lots of verticals, but it's the idea that we have, we feel like we have a competitive advantage or solution to the verticals that we focus on. So talk about what I'm curious mainly is, and you've already touched on the aerospace, um, but kind of talk about why you decided to go after that one initially. And then what I'm really curious to hear from you is how, you know, as you expand the verticals you go after, how do you maintain the competitive edge, right, while expanding that? Because you got to stay focused. You got to make sure you're adding value to the businesses you're working with. But you also can't stay with just one vertical. It's very difficult to build an entire business based on that. So I'm just kind of curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. So uh, after we realized that what we were doing in the aerospace industry worked really well and because of the the increased risk, you know, from acquiring banks for that specific vertical. And, you know, they like to lump travel into that. We then said, okay, well, what other industries would this work for? And then we realized that this would work for CBD. It would work for crypto exchanges, Um, you know, all types of different high-risk verticals, gaming, gambling. Um, And so what we did was uh, we basically went in in every area and said, we need a acquiring partner to help us with this specific industry or vertical. We've, our, our backend 
blew up enormously. So we ended up going from, you know, two, three acquiring partners to like 30, 40 different partners. And then I said, okay, this is, this is a little difficult to manage. So you start pairing it back. Who can, you know, cover multiple industries? Who's interested in, in, in adding a new vertical and, and putting together like the compliance programs that makes the acquirers and acquiring banks happy that you can manage the risk and that you know what you're doing. Um, and so when we pushed beyond that, we went into like CBD. And so we immediately uh, worked on the compliance portion of it, checking the COAs, making sure, you know, how quickly can we get these done? There's still a big human component in that industry because you have to review these manually. Um, and so we've gotten that down to a 24 to 72 hour approval time. So that's fairly fast, depending on fast, how, yeah. how many products they have. Right. Uh, but then we realized that, hey, look, this isn't just in the US that these companies are looking for this. This is also in the UK, Europe. And so we wanted to be able to support all these verticals that your standard, you know, Payfax and ISOs don't support. So we immediately found partners in, in Europe and the UK to support CBD. And as far as I know, we were one of one of the leaders for being able to support uh, multi-country North America and Europe for CBD. Um, you had some, maybe some in, in Europe and some in the U.S., but nothing that really crossed the, uh, the pond. Um, so we worked on that. And then we applied that to other industries like crypto exchanges. Um, so the, you know, having that human touch again with these individuals, you know, how are you structuring this? What is your, you know, a lot of people don't realize that they are involved in that payment process because they're, they're on-ramping funds to their platform, to a coin, to a, you know, a, a, an exchange, and then they're allowed to hold that coin there. So they're involved in that. So they're also responsible for KYC and AML. How are they handling their risk? Uh, and really sitting down and talking with these individuals and not just having a plug and play and then, oops, if there's a red flag, now we're going to try to figure out, is this compliant? Is it not? Um, and so we've developed a lot of internal processes and procedures and workflows to try to automate as much as of this process as possible to make it quick, streamlined. But like I said in that beginning, and once or twice in the process, a human does have to come in. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, this is so interesting. Um, one of the things I want to talk about a little bit is um, lead generation. So if we kind of shift gears a little bit and talk more about you know, growing the business. So we, you know, we talked about the the tech piece um, and and all of that, and that's that's super important. Um, but I want to talk about, you know, how do you generate leads for this thing? So let's start with aerospace. Obviously, that was I'm sure quite interesting. I know you had some context there, so maybe talk about how you leverage that. How do you generate leads? But then as you start into something like CBD, where I'm assuming you didn't have a ton of connections, that was more of a newer vertical. How are you generating leads, and how has that kind of evolved over time in terms of? You know, how do you get leads today to continue the growth of the company? So when we first started, I mean, it was pound the pavement. Well, maybe not pound the pavement like door to door, like retail, but it was cold calling. Um, you know, it was it was a numbers game. Uh, obviously, we reached out to existing contacts, people we knew in the industry, um, and and that helped us get in the door. 
Um, but then it was like, hey, what's the added value here? So we were, you know, we originally were talking to an ISV in, in the aerospace industry that had a CRM platform. And we said, hey, look, you could plug this in and allow companies to take payments right in the system, reconcile it. Um, you know, almost like a, uh, an entire QuickBooks concept for the aerospace industry. Right. We were taking care of the payments. They were doing all the inventory and accounting. Right. Um, and we went that approach. And then it started to kind of just turn into a referral business um, from there. And then as we went into other industries like CBD, we tried, I mean, we've tried it all. Pay-per-click, review sites, um, cold calling, uh, email marketing, text marketing. We, we've tried it all. Uh, and there are drastically different results. Um, I am not a big fan of pay-per-click. I think it's very... Not, not overpriced. You know? Yeah, very overpriced. The ROI on it's horrible. Um, and with all the bots out there now today, it's it's very difficult to manage. Um, so we actually, as we've evolved, we've started working with channel partners and our referral partners, which is the kind of bread and butter of where our stuff comes off of. So we've partnered with ISVs that have done integrations to us, and then they they do the sales for us and then refer those clients once they close the merchant on their software platform. Um, uh, referral partners is another big one. Uh, some we provide rev shares to, some we, you know, we use their service, they use our service. You know, it's there's a lot of different models, but that referral partner and channel partners is is a big one. And I know I think you just did a segment on that recently. I did. Yeah. How like you you work with individuals um, to really provide a complete solution. That's been very successful for us. Yeah, yeah. And so, what do you think going forward, though, Josh? I mean, is this? It sounds to me like this is sort of an evolving thing. You know, the process is evolving. You know, how do you see deal closing, um, you know, evolving going forward? I mean, it's obviously changed since you started out, right? Right. And and that's been in a, you know, a couple of years. And, uh -huh. and, you know, over the next five to 10 years, I think we're going to see drastic changes in, in the pay payment landscape. Um, you know, real-time payments is is still kind of evolving and coming out and mm -hmm. everybody's really big on crypto, you know, trying to decentralize stuff. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how these evolve and evolve, you know, laterally together. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there, there'll be some crossover and, and merging between this stuff. Um, you know, I know Visa and MasterCard are, are working on, you know, crypto or using blockchain to right. you know, facilitate fraud and, and transactions, uh, which is good. It, it provides that transparency, the openness, uh, validation, and so forth. Um, I don't know where it's going to end up in the next five to 10 years, but I think it's going to be very different from where we are at currently. Yeah. But do, do, do you, I'm just curious. I, I mean, I think we can probably all agree that they're probably going to be different. But that human element, I'm really interested in that. Do you see that human element sort of prevailing going forward? Um, to a point, um, I think I think different groups of of individuals ha have different, um, you know, opinions on on you know if they want automation or they want that human interaction. Um, but I I have seen that 
across all groups when it when there's a an issue they still want that human person to talk right. to they and right. they and they want it answered now they don't want a boilerplate answer. right people yeah. get so aggravated so quickly with that um so they you don't know, want an email that says we got your request we'll get back to you eventually right yeah. I mean. <laughs> and and some people are like okay if it, if it's a non-priority issue 24 hours i can deal with right over that they they kind of just like that's unacceptable sure um and especially because the way the world's moving now money's moving faster we're moving faster right you know, international travel everything everything's moving faster so you need to figure out how to leverage uh, technology with that human interaction to be able to move stuff fast and rapidly, um, because that's that's what the consumer is really looking for: less friction, faster. But in the end, I still want to have a human person I can interact with. Hmm. Yeah, I've got one last question for you. Uh, maybe a little bit out of left field, but I'm just curious to get your thoughts. Um, you know, obviously, you know, in, in our in our listening audience here, we have uh, entrepreneurs in the payments space that have started companies like what you're doing. Um, we also have investors. We have private equity people. We have fintech, right? Um, how do you think about capital uh, as it relates to growing the business? You know what I mean? Like, when is it the right time to bootstrap? When is it the right time to bring in venture capital or seed funds or um, angel investors? I'm just kind of curious, like, how do you think about capital macro um, as you look at your growth strategy and, you know, when is it the right time to access outside capital versus just kind of, cause our industry does tend to throw off some cash as well with most businesses, you know? So just curious to get your thoughts on the capital piece. You know, for a while I had mixed feelings on it. Um, you know, I, I wanted to be able to maintain that control and, and, and really, if I made a decision, it was my decision. If I was wrong, it was my, my call. Right. Um, and then, over time, I kind of started, you know, really looking at it again and saying, okay, I can grow. I can become a fairly large, decent known name. Uh, I can make an impact in the industry. But if I really want to get out there and, and really connect with as many people as possible, I felt we needed to bring capital on. Um, and so we made that shift a couple months ago to actually start bringing capital and investors on. Uh, and they like the fintech industry. Uh, yeah. It's it's a big industry. So I think maybe in 2021, I think around 20, 25% of all money that went out uh, from VCs went into the fintech space. So that's a pretty significant chunk of change. Um, now, obviously, there's a lot of you know niches on it. Are you going into emerging markets? Are you doing a crypto play? Um, so there's... And it really depends on the VC if if they if that's what they're looking to invest in at the time. Right. Um, but we decided to bring on investors to be able to scale and grow quickly, um, to be able to really do all the development work, bring in that the the human component, um, and and scale a little bit faster. And 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 I know it's been in the news recently. Hey, fintech, you know, laying off a lot of people. Um, right. Oh, we overhired. So we're trying to take a little bit staggered approach to it um, where we're putting in, okay, we believe we may need, you know, 20 more people, but we're going to hire them in blocks of five. So we don't end up in that situation where we hired all 20 and we're like, oops, well, market's turning on you. We need to lay off 20%. Um, 
Right. So that that's one thing that we're looking at. Uh, but it's really a business decision and it's really up to the person. You know, if 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 you're in a local market in, you know, Chicago and you just want to stay in Chicago and, you know, that's that's what you want to do. How about the local compute community? Then it may not be the best fit for you to raise funds. If you're going to go international and you really want to um, look at scaling and interacting with a lot of people, uh, then you probably need capital. Yeah. 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 It's a, it's a good answer. I think, uh, you know, like you said, it's a very personal decision. It's kind of what you, you know, you got to look at your objectives and, you know, it's, it's definitely a big decision, right? I mean, yeah. you know, bringing on outside capital, you know, in some ways it's people say, you know, it's kind of like you, you just got married or, you know, so, right. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's definitely a very important decision. It's not one to take lightly, but I think, uh, yeah, I think you got to look at your objectives, right. And see, you know, where, where it makes sense. I can tell you, though, from my experience with it, um, the best thing for somebody to do is, is you know, and, and this is where it, it really becomes overwhelming for uh, a, an entrepreneur, a single owner. Uh, you really need a team, uh, but you have to look at, OK, I, I was building an ISO and a payment company. Now I also have to be a, a, an expert in, in finance right. and raising funds. And, and that's so now you're wearing two hats. Yeah. Uh, but I would say, try to get as close to an MVP, try to get, you know, three to five customers, do proof of concept, and then go out and raise capital. Right. That that little bit yeah. makes, makes such a big difference and impact when you're talking mm-hmm. to investors. Um, before that, it's it's all hypotheticals. Right. But once you get a couple paid customers, now you can be like, "Look, I have proof of concept. Here it is. The model works." And then you can produce all those KPIs that they want to see. You know, what's your cost, customer acquisition cost? Um, you know, what is your ARR? You know, what's the lifetime value of these people? And and so you're going to be able to provide a little bit more information, and that's going to allow you as a business owner to retain a little bit more control not give up so much equity, having a little bit of negotiation power. So for us, when we went out to raise capital, we actually were producing revenue. We were cash flow positive. So we don't need their money. So it puts us in a very different boat than somebody like, hey, I need this money to finish my build. And I need this money to get to market yep. to acquire customers. So because of that, I can negotiate a little bit better on terms. Um, and if the deal doesn't seem right, I can find somebody else. Yep. Right. I love it. Right. Good stuff. Well, hey, more power. Yeah, it does. Definitely. Um, so Josh, this is great. I know we have a lot of more things we could talk about, but uh, we'll stop it there. But before we let you jump off today, um, if we have those who want to reach out to you, maybe, um, on the capital side, maybe on, you know, uh, uh, ISOs or others in the payment center that want to learn more about you or partnering or whatever it might be, uh, where would you send them to learn more about cards then? They can connect with me on LinkedIn, so Joshua Benedetti, or they can go to cardzen.com, and it's C-A-R-D-Z-3-N.com. Go to contact us and just submit through there. Put a little note in what you're looking for, and we'll reach out. Awesome. Josh, thank you so much for taking time today. Really appreciate the insights and uh, and your time. Yeah, Yeah, thank you. Uh, so, Patty, I want to talk for a second about NMI, and uh, rather than diving too deep into the topic today, because we're about to talk about it in the Insider Share in a little right. bit, um, I want to talk about security for a second, Patty. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, our industry a lot of times takes this for granted, 
Yeah. And we shouldn't. And so do our clients, right? So do the merchants. They just say, well, okay, there's, we're going to use this gateway. We're going to use that gateway. Which one's cheaper? Right. Right. Well, what's cheaper? You using a gateway and getting a $70,000 fraud, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know, situation and then getting investigated by the car brands. All of a sudden, is it cheaper? You know? Yeah. Right. um, I would really encourage you to think about NMI as a partner in technology that has the latest and greatest technology. We talk about it more in the insiders, but needless Mm -hmm. to say, recently my developers were looking at doing some research on our own, you know, for our software software companies and saying, where are our uh, weaknesses and vulnerabilities? Because this is obviously a subject I'm passionate about. And they said, hey, James, there's a whole new way of of doing this on on these web forms that collect card information that can make sure you don't have these uh, skimming devices and spam and all that. Or scams and and I and and they said you know we need to implement it, yeah. And I was like, okay, well I agree. What what do we do? And well we're integrated with NMI, and they said, well NMI already has the APIs. They already have everything ready to go, but we have to go in and change. So they spent you know a, a couple of days going right. through getting all of our payment forms and all of our different softwares with the new NMI technology that is the top security out there. Um, and it once again just reminded me how important it is to have a partner like NMI that knows what they're doing. It really is, you know, because these these fraud tactics, they they evolve so quickly. Oh my, it's amazing. Right? I mean, you know, I, I used to write about fraud a lot and we used to say it was like a game of whack-a-mole, right? Yeah. Um, and this is really important and having a partner like NMI that really looks out for these types of problems, you know, these inherent problems in the payment system. Please go to nmi.com to learn more and um Tell them we sent you. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by ccsalespro.com, the leader in merchant sales training and technology. If you're an individual merchant sales professional, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash training to get a free 14-day trial of our all-access pass. If you manage a team of merchant sales professionals, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash ISO to learn how we can help you grow. And now, here is Questions from the Field with James Shepard. So, Patty, I want to talk today about raising capital because that would be a great kind of segue from our interview that we just had. Perfect segue, yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to talk more about this because it's a it's a it's a topic that I have a lot of experience in and I just we don't really talk about as much. And so, yeah, I thought it would right. be interesting. So, Good, good, talk- good to uh, get, let people uh, benefit from your experience, because I know you do have a lot of experience in this area. Well, I'll do my best. So, um, yeah, so let's talk about different sources of capital, depending on where you're at in your journey in the payments industry, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, so the first source of capital is the buyout. And so for those of you listening that aren't aware of this concept, if you take your current residual, monthly residual, right. so the last three months, what's your average monthly residual? Mm-hmm. You could most likely sell that residual or some portion of it. You could most likely sell that residual. Um, and then I would say an industry average for a smaller portfolio of under $10,000 a month, you could probably sell that portfolio for something like a 20X to 24X would be an industry average. So if you said, well, I've got you know 12,000 in residual, but a couple thousand is new or whatever, I've got 10,000 kind of seasoned residual. Um, you could probably sell that ten thousand for two hundred thousand to two hundred and forty thousand um, dollars, and uh, you know you could get most of it up front. Some of it would end up probably being an earnout. Um, right. Patty and I actually wrote a fantastic uh, like eighty page 
ebook on this if you remember patty on the buyout i remember it was, so, it was yeah years ago but i still have it it's a ccsalespro.com slash buyout so check that mm-hmm. out um really really good book on that um now uh a lot of people in our industry uh don't like the buyout they think it's just the worst thing that you can do right um, I think all of these concepts could be the worst thing you could do. Depends on it all depends on your situation, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. um, my philosophy and what I did uh, or, or in the payment space that I really believe in is I sold the accounts that I knew were likely to cancel, meaning they had a standalone terminal. Uh huh. And I used that capital to go buy uh, free hardware, point of sale systems, hire employees to go after software relationships and things of uh-huh. that nature. Uh-huh. Um, I actually, I didn't really, you know, ever say it this way before, but really that's exactly what I'm still doing today. I have my consulting advertising business, which is extremely profitable. And I take the cash from that and I pay developers, marketing sales to build our software companies. And right. so I have statement analysis software company, I have a training software company. I have uh, the uh, property management software I mentioned earlier on the episode. Um, so I still do the same thing today. I, I just really believe that you know, there is, um, there's ways to generate value where it's not value that I necessarily want long-term, uh, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't have a lot of, it doesn't have a lot of long-term importance or value to me, but I can, I can stone, sell it. Right? Yeah, I can sell it or I can generate cash from it and I can dump that into something else. Right. So I think that's a really important way to look at it. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs think they're kind of above that. You know, it's like, well, I don't want to go out there and, and you know, like uh, Josh, you know, he's out there pounding the pavement, generating those first few deals, cold calling and all of that. And that's just super important to be willing to do that to get where you want. So you have the buyout. The second one that you have is uh, you actually have the idea of borrowing money mm-hmm. against your residual as collateral. Right. And um, there are several companies that do this. The cost of that capital is pretty high. So you're going to yes. pay a high interest rate. Mm-hmm. However, it can be a good deal. I actually did it several times. Um, uh, I won't give any, any names here, but uh, it's there, there was a people I, I did this with and we borrowed, um, I think in one, one case I did maybe uh, 100,000, 150,000 that we borrowed at one point early on when we were building our one of our first ISOs. Uh-huh. And, um, I don't regret it at all. Uh, you know, they took, I think, uh, 12% of our residuals. Uh, so the way it works is you you reassign your residuals to that person. So like, let me give you an example. Let's say I borrow $100,000 and I agree to pay $10,000 a month for 10 months, right? Obviously, it wouldn't be that you'd have interest on top and it usually right. be a little term, but to make the math easy. So I have $100,000, uh, know, I borrow $100,000. Now, let's say my residuals were $100,000 a month, right? Okay. Now you might ask, well, then why would you need to borrow hundred thousand dollars? Well, the reason is because out of that hundred thousand, I'm paying seventy thousand in agent residuals. I'm paying an, another twenty five thousand in employee payroll, right? Right. Leaving right. me with five thousand dollars. You know, I don't have very much money to grow with, so I might borrow hundred thousand. I can put all into growth and then pay back. The way it would work is your hundred thousand in residual would get reassigned. The payment would get reassigned to your the person you borrowed the money from, the company. Okay. Then the hundred thousand goes to them. They take out their ten thousand dollar payment, and then they give you the other ninety. So they know for sure they're going to get their money. It's guaranteed because gotcha, they have first crack at it. Exactly, and then they take out their payment and forward it on to you. So that's a form of capital in our industry. So both of those two would be more kind of the very, very, very beginning stages. And for those who are, you know, you've built a payments business and now you say, I really want to bring software into my business. So I need to pay developers $70,000 to build this really cool little app that I'm going to use for invoicing or or whatever it is. And you're like, you know, you want to get that money right away. You go get that 70,000 by selling part of your business and you got to build it back up again, selling part of your portfolio or by uh, borrowing against it. 
Um, now, as we move up the chain a little bit, then you get into things like angel investors, mm -hmm. um, you know, seed rounds, um, things like that. And this is more traditional. So the first two are kind of more really specifically for payment processing. Right. When you get into things like angel investing, uh, there's fantastic books and resources on that. But this is usually where you're getting individuals to write you checks for anywhere from $25,000 to $250,000. Um, and as Josh just mentioned, you know, at that point, you are going to generally want people who um, you're going to want your business to be at a point where you have some leverage, you, you've built something, you've proven that there's something there. And right. most importantly, you're going to have to have a really, really compelling reason that you need the money, that you're going to use the money. So what you have to understand about the world of the angel investor, especially, and even the venture capitalist, you have to understand that these investors, they are not looking for a modest return from you. That doesn't, that's not interesting to them. They know that if they make 10 investments, what they expect is they expect four or five of those 10 to fail completely. Mm -hmm. They expect two or three to work out pretty well where they can, they can maybe flip it to a private equity firm or, or, you know, something like that. Um, and, or generate a little bit of cash flow, but then they expect like one out of that 10, one or two to make them 50 times what they invested. So in other words, to get that money, you have to pitch a big vision that you are going to grow 50, a hundred times where you're at today in valuation. Mm -hmm. Um, and so to get that money, you need to have a big vision. So, you know, use the first two if you're just kind of saying, oh, I think I want to just do something here. But if, if you really want to build something big, you have to have that vision to get investors involved. Otherwise, they're not going to do it. Right, right, right. So so then you get past that stage. And a lot of people, you know, it's like you say, well, I didn't have to do any buyouts. I didn't borrow against my residuals. I don't have, didn't have, never got any investors. And we're bringing in $100,000 a month, right? So you're like, you're serious. You know, you got some serious money right. here. You know, this is the idea of if somebody bought your business, how much cash flow would they be able to generate? Right. Um, and so now when we got, you know, let's call it uh, one or two million dollars uh, a year that you're generating in profitability, that would be on the low side. You probably want to get closer to five million a year before private equity is going to be super interested in that. But a private equity firm is a company where they come in and they will buy your entire business. That's what they do. So they buy the entire business and then they give you the capital that you need to really grow, but they also give you the oversight and they right. give you the um, motivation <laughs> that you need. So you kind of become an employee of their organization, really. Right. Now, of right. course, if they're going to buy you out, they're assuming that if you're planning to stick around, they they're, they're, they believe that you're capable of running the business successfully. They don't want to micromanage you, but you're going to have results that you need to hit. And if you don't hit those results, well, then they're going to come in and they're going to have an issue. Now, the, the way you make a lot of money with private equity is most private equity uh, funds, they try to flip their uh, the businesses they buy um, three to seven years after they buy it. And there's this process they go through. And so private equity firms, um, there's the this kind of um, hierarchy. So you have like uh, um, Blackstone, which is like the largest one, right. and different private equity firms. So you have private equity firms that are smaller and they'll go and buy a business for, for you know, five, 10, 20 million dollars. And then they'll try to, through their use of capital and efficiency and everything else, they will try to work with that founder to say, hey, we can give you a lot of resources. Let's make the company be worth, instead of $20 million, let's take it to $150 million over right, seven right. years. Then they go and sell it to Blackstone or to another private equity firm. So what happens is when you sell the company, let's say you sold your company for $10 million, the private equity firm would say, hey, if you're going to stay on as CEO, instead of giving you $10 million, we'd like to give you $8 million. 
And we want your $2 million to be stock in the new entity that we're going to create through this private equity. Right. So, so now if we can sell it instead of 10 million, if we can sell it for 50 million, your 2 million is going to be worth a lot more money. So the reason people do the private equity deals is because it's kind of a uh, an interesting move because it's kind of a staged exit strategy. It's like, eventually I want to exit this business, um, but not really yet. And so it's kind of like, I've gotten the business as far as I can with my current connections and capital. So I want to bring another company in that's going to infuse just millions of dollars in capital into my business and that's going to help me with my operating processes and the finance aspect of things and really give us all the resources we need to go acquire companies and like right. really build something big. And then I'm still going to be able to run the business as long as that's what I've negotiated and I'm I'm competent to do such. I'm going to be able to run the business knowing that I work for this other company now. So if I do a bad job, they can fire me, right? right. That's what I take now. It's not my business anymore. But I can run this thing for five, six, seven years, and then they're going to flip it to another private equity firm, and then I can exit at that point, or maybe I flip one more time. And so I know people that have done private equity two, three times. Two or three times, yeah, same year, right? Over over fifteen years, they've run a company and they've made you know they made two million the first time, they made seven million the next time, and they're on track to make fifty million the third time. You know, so um, I know plenty of people in our industry that have in done our industry. I know many people in our industry that have done that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so uh, that is uh, the idea of raising capital in short. Really good advice, James. Thanks. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For nearly 40 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading the Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at www.greensheet.com. So James, this week I wanted to do a little bit of an update on fraud. Um, we haven't talked about this a lot lately. I know we talked about it a few weeks ago with regard to Zelle. That's the P2P payments platform that's been plagued by fraud. I think that that demonstrated something that made me really realize you know, how cybersecurity especially as it relates to payments, is really taking center stage. This week, I saw two new reports out of Visa showing how um, fraudsters are shifting their focus. You know, like a couple of years ago, when we saw a lot of people um, migrating online, so did the fraudsters. But now that people are starting to go back into stores, um, fraudsters are, you know, picking up the in-person fraud routines. It's a double whammy for merchants, really, you know, because they continue to these fraudsters are continuing to uh, target e-commerce, um, you know, with malware, ransomware, phishing attacks, among other things. Um, but for example, we're seeing a pretty significant increase in card present threats like card skimming hmm. at ATMs as well as at older uh, POS devices. I saw an article just this morning on my on my on my um, news feed, you know, about it was like, you know, and, and it just boggled my mind because it was a, a convenience store that had an ATM. Like you could see they showed the picture. It was like in the back corner of the store. Yeah. Well, you know, if you're going to put a skimming device on what better place to do it than in a machine that's in the back corner of the store? Sure. Of course, on the other hand, I, I saw another article just the other day about an ATM that was at the front of the store where somebody backed up their truck and broke the window and took the ATM. So I guess there's a trade-off there. Right, but, right. 
But, you know, I mean, it, it really um, was interesting to me. It said, because uh, according to Visa's report, from June through November of 2021, Visa says it saw a 176% increase in detected skimming devices wow. compared to the same period in 2020. Hmm. That's a pretty significant, you know. Yeah. Um, but, you know, still the digital e-commerce environment, you know, vastly accelerated by the pandemic remains a rich target uh, for cyber crooks, mm-hmm. um, which is perhaps why a majority of merchants, 59%, say that cybersecurity threats are the big, biggest challenges that they um, yep. face mm-hmm. in, in regards to digital payments. Now, here's a couple things that I thought were interesting from Visa's report. Um, nearly three-fourths of the data breaches, breach cases investigated by Visa's global reach, uh, risk team involved e-commerce merchants. Often they were social engineering and ransomware attacks, mm. digital skimming attacks targeting e-commerce platforms and third-party code integrators are common. And these digital skimming, this is something I learned, just learned, um, digital skimming involves fraudsters deploying malicious code onto a merchant's website that targets checkout pages, then harvests payment data like PAN and CVV, yeah, expiration dates. Um, huh. And of course, you know, I didn't. I was amazed that this was able to happen. Visa set pins the blame, not surprisingly, on lax merchant security controls. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and you know what? I can, I can, this is interesting actually, because I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> we have this kind of our, our commercial for NMI here. But yeah, um, great. <laughs> what, one of the things that, that's actually super interesting, Patty, and it's, I didn't know you were going to talk about this today, but we literally just had this this situation uh, come up. Not not that we had a, a scam or anything, but um, we are in the process of revamping our integrations with uh, right. NMI and, uh, and uh, another company with one of our software companies. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that since we built it like a year and a half ago, right? There is like this whole new way that you do it. And uh, I'm not going to dive into all the technical details because frankly, it took me a while for my lead developer to explain it to me. It's really complicated. But it probably Um, made your head explode, right? It did. And and it is exactly because of this. And so I think one of the key things for people to realize is that security plays a huge role in you say, well, which which gateway should I use? We'll just use this one. Well, uh, yeah, uh, that's uh, yeah, that could right? come back and bite you. Yeah, so I think it's interesting. I think I think it's very important to know that I mean, even the last eighteen months, you know, if you're dealing with merchants that are card not present and they built a they built a shopping cart or they built a web mm-hmm. platform that grabs, uh, you know, information. You know what you're describing, Patty, is exactly right. That it's not that hard for someone to use the latest technology to embed a skimming device on your website. Yeah. Yeah. You can end up and, having some liability for that. So you probably need to take a quick look at your at the security. It's probably a good idea, you know. And 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 again, like I said, I wasn't as aware of this. Yeah. You know, until I started doing some research. And it, right. like I said, it made my head pretty much explode. It's like, oh my gosh, I didn't know they could do that. Yeah. You know, another thing that's really crazy is all these crypto frauds, you know, mm-hmm. with you know, uh, malware, you know, focused on browser extension wallets. Yeah. Um, there's also something I had not noticed. It was called uh, these crypto bridge services, which allow crypto holders to transfer their crypto assets from one blockchain to another. These apparently are hot tar- targets uh, between 
in, in January and February of this year, three sizable thefts exploiting vulnerabilities in these various bridge services yeah. netted cyber thieves over $400 million, according to Visa's research. Now, in reporting all these findings, you know, Visa made note um, of the $9 billion, $9 billion with a B, that, hmm. that it has invested in network security over the last five years. Wow. Good night. Right. That's money that went towards the hiring of fraud specialists, as well as AI technology that can prevent mm-hmm. and detect fraud. Um, AI monitoring alone, though, this is what I really kind of made made me sit up and take notice. AI monitoring alone blocked four point two billion in fraudulent payments last year. Hmm. Wow. You know, many of these were, uh, you know, potential frauds that merchants and cardholders knew nothing about. That's like half of what they invested right there. Well, and the question is, what would it have been if they hadn't made those investments? Exactly, which right. kind of brings me to my, my my final point, which is, you know, with all these investments that are being made, these are things you need to kind of remi- remind yourself and remind your merchants of. I mean, when merchants start complaining about the high cost of card acceptance, you know, it's, it's, it's important to remember fraud prevention is not cheap. And neither is fraud. Wow, great statement. Thanks, Patty. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production of greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. And we hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.